Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, I'm talking with Tamara Freuman. She is a New York City-based registered dietitian and America's trusted digestive nutrition expert. We're discussing her book, The Bloated Belly Whisperer. Tamara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what inspires you to put this book together? Well, definitely my patients. I have worked in a gastroenterology practice for just about a decade now. And, you know, the number one complaint I see over and over again is bloating. And it's really a symptom people have. They don't really know what their diagnosis is. And they've probably come to me after seeing at least one doctor, if not two or more, and alternative stuff and Internet stuff and self-diagnosis and pills and still having their problem. Um, And so, you know, over the years, I started working with these patients and starting to understand uh, the different types of bloating and what causes them and how to fix them and uh, realizing that there was probably an opportunity to reach a lot more people who are suffering from this problem if I actually put it down on paper and <laughs> spread it out across the world. So do you find that, that it's quite common for people to experience bloating? I think bloating is very common. You know, I think the the data show, at least anyone who's tried to study it and capture it, estimate, you know, one in every six uh, Americans uh, suffer from bloating. And so that seems uh, pretty common to me. Uh, and certainly that would be on a more chronic basis. I think many more people may experience it on a more episodic basis. So... Um I guess that would make it already two categories. So there's people that experience just sometimes and people that have it all the time. So if it was just sometimes, what would that look like? I mean, sometimes, you know, it might be like, oh, you know, when I overeat, uh, when I go out to dinner and I have like an appetizer and a main course and a dessert and I overeat, I feel really uncomfortable and bloated. Or if I eat, you know, really too close to bedtime or, you know, I drink too much alcohol, I feel like really just uncomfortable and full and pressure and... Um, but it's not sort of this chronic condition that people don't know why it's happening. Of course, when you overeat um, and you feel really bloated, you know, you don't need a doctor to tell you why. I think the people who come to me are people who, you know, don't eat very much or think that they're eating really healthfully or find themselves on one day eating the same thing and feeling fine and then the next day eating the same thing and feeling really uncomfortable. It's those people who are experiencing unexplained bloating on a more chronic basis that I wrote this book for. So um, is there different ways that, that bloating can look like? I mean, we all think, oh, yeah, I feel, you know, my stomach feels full and uncomfortable. But is there, a different, is there different patterns for that? Yeah, and so, I mean, thinking about bloating, I mean, it can really mean one of two things or, frankly, both of them together. And so one way to, to define it is it's a visible distension. In other words, there are points in the day, often when you wake up, where your belly looks flat or flatter, you know, your baseline is flattish, um, and then at some point in the day, it's really distended, and it's sticking out, and it's visible. Your waistline is bigger, you may have to unbutton your pants, you can see it. Um, but there's another type of bloating that's not necessarily visible, which is just a really uncomfortable 
feeling of internal pressure, not necessarily pain, it's just short of pain, but it's this discomfort and pressure, even if you're not necessarily looking distended. And some people will have both. They both look distended and feel uncomfortable pressure. So bloating can be any combination of those things. And um, so can this happen to anybody at, at any age, or is this just something that happens as we get older? No, I mean, a lot of my patients are, you know, teenagers and, you know, college students and people in their 20s. And so I certainly think that there are certain causes for bloating that may vary by age. And so certain causes of bloating may be more common among older people versus others for younger people. Um, But because there's so many different causes of bloating, it can really affect people at all, you know, levels of the the age spectrum and um, both men and women. So, and, and with this discomfort, are there any other symptoms that, that you would see that could be quite common? Because if we're, if we're bloated, I would assume that we're perhaps not assimilating food properly. So can people be tired or have any other symptoms like that? Great question. And I guess, you know, certainly one cause of bloating could be not assimilating food properly, but certainly there are plenty of causes of bloating that have nothing to do with how you assimilate food. And so, um, you know, not necessarily, right? And so some causes of bloating are because you swallow a lot of air. It has nothing to do with what you're eating or how you're digesting your food. Um, and so that wouldn't necessarily be associated with fatigue or, or tiredness. It would be associated with a lot of belching <laughs> because mm. you are swallowing a ton of air. Um, and other types of bloating may be purely just related to being full of stool, being super constipated and backed up. Um, and so your food has assimilated perfectly fine in the small intestine, which is where we absorb our nutrients, but nothing's moving out of your large intestine. And so you wouldn't necessarily be tired uh, if your colon moves slowly, but you would be very gassy and flatulent and feel very uncomfortable um, and maybe have a rock-hard belly. And so because there are so many different causes of bloating, the associated symptoms will also vary a lot as well. Um, which does make sense. And you do talk about in your book um, that bloating can look different. Um, and you have a whole section on upper abdominal bloating. So what does that mean? So, I mean, I think it's helpful when you are bloated to really try to think about what neighborhood of my digestive system does this um, problem seem to be originating in. And the two main neighborhoods to think about are stomach versus intestine. And I think with patients, they often kind of use the word stomach to describe the entire digestive system when they actually really mean their bowels or their gut or their intestine, which is all the same thing. Um, Your stomach is actually quite high up. And so if you kind of are touching your own chest, sort of like that soft, tender part right underneath your breastbone, really up high, that's your stomach. Your stomach is really high up. Um, And it's also a little over to the left. Um, Your stomach is above your belly button. Um, and so if you're feeling uncomfortably full way up top there, that's the stomach neighborhood. And that already narrows down what some of the causes might be if you're experiencing tightness, fullness, bloating, pain, discomfort up there, up top. Beneath your belly button, intestine. <laughs> and so if you're feeling crampy, bloated, distended underneath your belly button, that neighborhood is most likely the intestine, and that's where your bloating is probably originating. Now, it could be your small intestine or your large intestine. We can't say for sure, but certainly this sort of dividing up the torso between that upper part and lower part already kind of gives you a sense for what neighborhood we should be focusing our efforts on. So if we have the upper abdominal bloating, what would be causes for that? 
So there's a, a bunch of different causes for stomach-related bloating. And so one of them I mentioned is swallowing air. Um, another one is sort of acid-related indigestion, uh, which can cause bloating for some people. Uh, another one is having your, a slow-to-empty stomach. That's a condition called gastroparesis, where your stomach just takes a really long time to empty after a meal, an abnormally long time. So you feel really full, even after eating only a small amount. You can be very nauseous, have no appetite. Um, there's another condition called functional dyspepsia, where your stomach doesn't stretch very well in response to eating. And so you start to eat just a tiny bit, and you feel really, really uncomfortably full. Even though your stomach empties at a normal rate, it just doesn't stretch well. And so if you eat larger volumes or bulkier foods, you can feel really uncomfortably tight and full. Um, and so those are a few of the upper abdominal bloating causes. There's others, but um, those are some of the really common ones that I see. Um, and they are each kind of associated with their own type of symptom pattern and their own sort of response to food. Um, and as a, as a dietitian, my job is to kind of listen uh, to how different meals affect you and how you feel over the course of the day. And I can usually parse out the differences, say, between a slow to empty stomach versus, you know, a functional dyspepsia where you just feel really full quickly because you don't stretch well versus an acid indigestion. And so I'm, I'm trained to kind of tell the difference when I hear how you feel after eating certain meals. And so um, with... with um with all of this going on, do you find that what you said when people come to you, they've usually explored a little bit. So what would be some kind of things that their doctor would take them through to rule in or out some of these things? I mean, in my experience, the first thing a doctor does is they want to scope you. They want to give you a colonoscopy and an endoscopy, um, which on one hand is not a bad idea, right? I mean, certainly some very serious things like colon cancer um, can be caused by bloating and uh, or bloating can be a sign of those things, I should say, sorry. Um, and so certainly they're trying to rule out you know, very um, serious things. So sometimes they'll scope you. Sometimes, you know, they'll ask a few questions. They'll feel your belly. They'll suspect that you're really constipated. They'll just try to, you know, give you a laxative or something to see if that, like, alleviates your bloating. Often doctors will get the impression that it's an acid indigestion kind of thing, and then they'll just give you a prescription acid-reducing medication. And so they'll usually throw a medication at you or try to scope you. Uh, is often the first place that I've seen uh, most doctors start. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, w one experience I have, I'm, I'm actually in Canada, and um, they don't scope people for just bloating. Um, it, it's, a, it's not very common unless you're of a certain age, um, wh which is sometimes okay and sometimes can um, miss something that, that can be going on a little more serious. So if, if somebody's in that situation or if they're waiting a year for a scope, because that's another thing that can happen here if it's not an urgent um, not perceived as urgent. Um, what symptoms should somebody be looking out for if it is something that is more serious? Yeah, so there's certain alarm symptoms that you really want to be uh, on the lookout for because, like I said, bloating can really um, potentially be the sign of something serious. Um, blood in your stool would be something that is of concern. Um, an unintentional weight loss. So if you started to lose weight, I mean, I'm talking like a pound or two, but I mean, if you really start to lose some weight and you're not trying, that's of concern. Um, an iron deficiency, any nutritional deficiency, but especially like an iron or a B12 deficiency, um, particularly if you're not a vegan, right? Like if you're vegan and you have a B12 deficiency, that's not shocking. That's a 
pretty common thing. And if you're a strict vegetarian and you're iron deficient, that's also not shocking. But if you eat a mixed diet and you're iron or B12 deficient, often that can signal something more serious happening in the gut absorption-wise. Um, and that would merit sort of a more, um, it would make a stronger case to get scoped. Um, also, you know, sudden onset constipation, kind of out of nowhere. Like you're literally living your life, you were super regular, eating the same diet, nothing changed, and literally all of a sudden you stop going to the bathroom. Uh, that would be a concern. Um, and then if your belly kind of has this like very pregnant appearance that never flattens. So you wake up looking pregnant, you go to sleep looking pregnant, whether you're fasted, whether you're fed, it never flattens because often that's a sign, like that would give us concern that maybe there's some fluid accumulating or a tumor or something. Um, it's normal, it's not normal, but it's common for bloated people to kind of look pregnant at certain times of the day, but there are times of the day where they are relatively flatter. And if that isn't you, um, that might be a, a concern. So I'm going to guess that it, it's more in the morning that your stomach is more flat and as the day goes on, you get more and more distended. For most people, yes. Um, some people will wake up a little bit bloated and then once they have a bowel movement, they flatten. But yes, in general, morning is most bloated people's best time of day. And and do you find that um, some people are wanting to do because intermittent fasting is is uh, pretty popular right now? So are some people with these issues wanting to do more fasting just because they're more comfortable? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. Fasting can go both ways from a bloating perspective. You know, some people um, find that the less often they eat, the less bloated they feel, and they would prefer just to have a smaller window of eating. But many people, who their bloating is very volume dependent, right? Like that functional dyspepsia we talked about. If your stomach doesn't stretch well and you have, or your stomach is really slow, like in gastroparesis, it may not work for you to eat an entire day's worth of food in an eight-hour window. If your stomach takes four to five hours to empty a small meal, you can't eat three meals in eight hours. You're going to be wildly uncomfortable. So some people really do need to space out their meals, like sort of these very small meals spread out over a longer time period. Otherwise, they're incredibly bloated. And so intermittent fasting from a bloating perspective may work really well for certain types of bloating, but might be disastrous for other types of bloating. Um, so w when someone comes to see you, what do you do first? So the first thing I do is I ask them to describe the problem. They say, you know, I'm so bloated. And I say, well, what does that mean to you? What does bloating feel like for you? And I try to get a sense, is it a physical distension, like something that we see? Is it something that they just feel? Is it both? I try to get a sense for the neighborhood. I ask them, show me, point to where you feel bloated. Um, and so I try to get a sense for, is it upper or lower? And then I'll kind of, you know, feel around some of the associated symptoms that will also give me a sense for whether it's upper or lower. For example, I'll ask about their bowel patterns. Um, are you constipated? Do you have diarrhea? Like what's happening for you in the bathroom? Um, if things are completely normal, no matter, like they're super bloated, but their bowels are regular and great and perfect, I'm thinking it might be more of a stomach problem and not a bowel problem, right? And if they tell me, oh my God, I'm super constipated. I only go like once every three days. You know, I'm already kind of zeroed in on what this is probably going to be. Um, and so I'll also ask about, you know, similar upper GI symptoms. Do you have any nausea? Do you have any change in your appetite? And um, are you belching? Is there gas? And if there's gas, is it upper gas, like belching, or is it lower gas, like flatulence? And so just kind of asking those, you know, half a dozen questions, I've already narrowed it down to where in the 
in the digestive tract it's happening and to the kind of two most likely scenarios. And then from there, we walk through a typical day in your life. You know, what time do you wake up? How do you feel in the morning? Do you eat breakfast? What time? What do you eat for breakfast? What brand? You know, and really, and how do you feel after that? And are you gassy yet? No. Great. Let's keep going. And we literally walk through minute by minute of the day and start to understand how the food and the symptoms interact. And usually by the end of that exercise, I have a pretty good sense of what I think it's going to be. Um, and then we will try a diet intervention that is tailored to that type of bloating to see if they feel better after two weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about that um, more when we get back. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Tamara Freuman, and we're discussing her book, The Bloated Belly Whisper. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emil Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with host Nancy Kerala. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. Together with her guests, we'll explore C. diff infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You 
are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. My co-host Oliver is a seven-pound chihuahua cross, and he sits through all my shows with great puppy patients. He was super happy when I came home with Carbona Pet Stain and Odor Remover, which is an oxy-powered formula with active foam technology, and it is engineered to permanently remove pet stains and odor. Carbona is a household brand. They've turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. Although he tries his best, Oliver sometimes does have accidents. I pulled out the Carbona Pet Cleaner, and voila, we were stain-free and clean. It was easy to use, pet-safe, and hassle-free. The built-in 2-in-1 brush top tackles stain at the surface and deep in the carpet fibers. It is now my other best friend. Use code FTTC at Carbona.com to save 20%. Happy cleaning! Today we're talking with Tamara Freuman, and we're discussing her book, The Bloated Belly Whisperer. So, Tamara, um, what are some of the the causes? So, when you assess somebody, you know, in your book, I think you mention uh, ten causes, and you go through the most common causes of bloating. So, what would be some of those? Well, so you know, we talked a little bit about some of the bloating causes that start in the stomach, and so slow stomach emptying is something having. Um, Abnormal uh, nerve and muscle reflexes of the abdominal wall um, can also be a cause of bloating where basically your abdominal wall uh, doesn't really hold you in very well when your stomach starts filling up and it kind of literally just, you look like you're pregnant with a food baby. Like you start eating and the abdominal wall just completely gives out um, and that's something called abdominophrenic dyssynergia. Um, try spelling that one. Um, <laughs> acid indigestion is one. We talked about functional dyspepsia, which is when your stomach doesn't stretch very well after eating a meal. Swallowing air is a cause of bloating. That's called aerophagia. And then there's a bunch of causes that can originate in your intestines. And so I think the most common one I see is constipation-related. Uh, when you are taking in more than you are putting out um, and things start to build up and sort of that big burden of stool can be um, really bloating and uncomfortable. Another one that we see a lot of in my practice is called SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that's when you have too many good bacteria living in the wrong neighborhood of your intestines. Uh, the bacteria that are supposed to stay in your mouth are supposed to live in your colon, but have somehow figured out a way to, you know, take up residence in your small intestine and, and cause all sorts of gas and havoc. Um, there's other types of carbohydrate malabsorption issues. We've all heard of lactose intolerance, but there's other ones. There's fructose intolerance and there's sucrose intolerance. And anytime that we don't absorb a sugar in our diet, it can cause gas and bloating. Um, and then some of the more serious things are celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease where you um, react badly to a protein in wheat called gluten and your uh, immune system literally attacks itself, it's, uh, the, the intestines, um, and it causes malabsorption and all sorts of 
problems in the bathroom and systemically, including bloating. Um, and then not making enough pancreatic enzymes can cause a lot of bloating. If you don't absorb your fat and your proteins and your carbs, then all that malabsorption can create a ton of gas and bloating, in addition to weight loss and diarrhea and all sorts of very troubling symptoms. So a whole lot of reasons that someone could be bloated. And as you can see, it's super important to really understand what's causing your bloating if you're going to fix it. So, um, and, and it seems like some of this in, in mainstream medicine um, isn't being looked at. A lot of people, do you find, are getting diagnosed with um, IBS instead of um, looking into more any of these causes you just mentioned? Yes, absolutely. I mean, IBS has become, it is, it's such a catch-all for, I didn't see anything when I scoped you. Um, and so it's IBS, <laughs> which, you know, there are a lot of conditions that masquerade as IBS um, that present very similarly to IBS that are not IBS. Um, and, you know, it's very common for us to see patients who have been carrying a diagnosis of IBS for years. And then in our practice, the doctor will diagnose them as having, say, a pelvic floor muscle dysfunction where they can't go to the bathroom, they can't eliminate stool well because their pelvic floor muscles don't work. That's not IBS. That's a muscle dysfunction. And when you fix the muscle dysfunction, they can poop just fine. Um, so, you know, we see a lot of things like that where uh, IBS is kind of used as a catch-all, but the patients don't really respond well to the typical IBS treatments, to the diets, to the medications, and yet nobody goes back to question, well... It looks like IBS on the surface, but this patient isn't responding to any of the things that someone with IBS typically responds to. Maybe we should really take another look. And, and that's something that we would do a lot in our practice, uh, which is, uh, I think, really important. Well, and, you know, I do find um, in, in Canada, in my practice, I have a lot of people who are diagnosed with IBS and they do have something like like SIBO or Candida overgrowth. And um, it actually sometimes is quite simple to get them more comfortable. But, the, but you know, it, it unless somebody has celiac disease, Crohn's disease, um, they're not getting a lot of help, um, wh- which is unfortunate because there are a lot of people with these symptoms that don't have an autoimmune disease or cancer. And their scopes are clear, and they're still really, really uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing, which is often it really is IBS, but they're still not getting enough help, right? And so there, I think there's this very common misperception in, in the medical community as well, which is, you know, it's quote-unquote just IBS, and it's something you have to live with. Um, and while it's true that there's no cure for IBS, so it is a condition that you're going to probably carry for the rest of your life, that doesn't mean that there's nothing to do about it. There are loads of remedies. There's prescription medication, there's over-the-counter medication, there's supplements, there's diets. There's so many remedies, um, and very often our patients with IBS can find a really nice patchwork of a little bit of diet change, one or two supportive supplements, plus or minus a medication that they might use on an as-needed basis versus in more severe cases they might use on a daily basis. There's so much that can be done to make people feel better even when they do have IBS, like when it actually is IBS. And I think that a lot of people are getting the message from their healthcare providers that, oh, good, good news, it's just IBS, you're not going to die of Crohn's disease, and it's not something, quote, unquote, serious. But IBS is really serious in terms of quality of life. I mean, people with IBS miss a ton of work. They cancel social plans. They cancel vacations. It's a very serious diagnosis in terms of what it means on a day-to-day basis uh, and your emotional well-being and your, 
and your family and your social life and your work life. And so, and there are so many things we can do for our patients with IBS. And it really, it's frustrating to see that people suffer for so long when they don't have to. Well, it, you know, and I definitely agree. And, and, and digestive discomfort, uh, whatever the diagnosis and the cause, it is pretty, you know, life-altering because not only are you bloated, but you could have diarrhea or constipation or any of the other symptoms that we mentioned that are going along with it, which means, you know, you're having to manage all these symptoms and your quality of life is going down. And, um, that, you know, that to me, it's not just about quantity of life. It's about quality. So it might not kill you, but you're not enjoying your life you know you can't go out and eat at a restaurant you can't as you said you're canceling plans and you're probably missing work or you're being late or you know and that's not right either yeah, completely. Um, uh, and every April is IBS Awareness Month, and the, you know these are the issues that we really try to talk about and um, and spread awareness of. Which is, you know, I think also family members and friends like kind of get tired of that person being late for something or canceling on things, and think like, oh come on, man, it's, it's just IBS. Like, stop overreacting. And people don't realize like really the the stress and the the angst. <laughs> Uh, that this diagnosis can carry. Like when I get invited to dinner, I think, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to eat at that place. When my patients with IBS get invited to dinner, panic is the first <laughs> is the first reaction, mm-hmm. which is, oh my god, like what if I get sick? You know, well, and that's that's no way to live. Well, you know, and I, I definitely agree. I actually have celiac disease and I was just traveling and there was, uh, you know, we were at a conference and there was a bunch of us and, and I was basically determining where we were going because we had to find a restaurant that could cater to gluten-free. And and I think that this is something a lot of people are complaining about, that it is difficult to have a normal life and you don't want to be that that pain um, when you are going out. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, it's becoming more and more common that people are having these issues yeah for sure (laughs) no one wants to be that one (laughs) that girl Um, but you know there it is I mean I'm here in New York practicing and what I will say about New York I think that the the restaurant establishment in New York is actually quite used to people being very (laughs) specific (laughs) about their needs when they go out and um, they are very able to cater to like the the five different people at the table who have five different dietary patterns Um, and so you know here in New York there's probably somewhat less of a stigma uh, when you're eating out with special needs compared to other places in the world. But still, I mean, sometimes it can be uncomfortable. On a first date, you don't want to be asking about <laughs> whether there's onions and garlic and if there's gluten. And can you ask the chef? Like, you don't want to do that on, like, a first date. Yeah, for sure. Now, in your book, you, you talk about fiber, which we all know fiber is something, especially if you're constipated, that you do need in your diet. So how can that help some of these symptoms? Um, so fiber can be your best friend or your worst enemy, depending, and also the different types of fiber can uh, play a really big difference depending on the different types of bloating you have. And so fiber has a lot of different properties that have it interact with bloating symptoms in various ways. For example, fiber slows down stomach emptying. That's one of the reasons that it helps sort of healthy people maintain a healthy weight because when you fill up with fiber, um, like with like, you know, a big salad with your meal, for example, it slows down how that meal empties your stomach. It keeps you feeling fuller for longer. You don't have to eat as often. You can, you know, manage your weight really well. Um, That's a terrific thing about fiber except if your stomach is already slow to empty to begin with. Then eating a ton of fiber is a nightmare 
because you eat this big salad when you have gastroparesis, a slow stomach, and you are so uncomfortably full and bloated. You're nauseous. You may even vomit. You can't eat again for another 10 hours after that. You eat it, you know, at 4 p.m., and you're still full the next morning. Fiber is not always your friend for certain types of upper GI bloating um, because of that effect of how it slows down stomach emptying. Uh, there's also two different families of fiber. There's insoluble fiber, which is sort of that roughage you know, skins and leaves and seeds and peels. Um, and that type of fiber speeds up the transit time through your intestines. Um, it's bulky. It doesn't really hold on to any water. Um, and so it kind of just creates this, like, bulky roughage pretty much goes through you how, however it looked when you chewed it and swallowed it. Um, and for people who have a sluggish and slow uh, intestine, uh, it can speed things up and help you move your bowels better. Um, but if you are prone to diarrhea, that type of roughage fiber is your worst nightmare because it speeds things through when it doesn't hold on to any water. And so you have these watery, sort of more urgent stools that you are already predisposed to to begin with, in which case you want to choose more soluble fiber, which is more cooked grain type of fiber. It's the flesh of fruits. It's the inside of certain vegetables. It's your squashes. It's your oatmeals. It's your, you know, sweet potatoes without the skin. It's your mangoes and your melons and your papayas. It's uh, those types of fiber. And that holds on to water, creates this viscous, gel-like texture, and it slows down transit time in your intestines. And it holds on to water, and it sucks it up like a sponge. And for people who are prone to urgent bowel movements or loose bowel movements or too frequent bowel movements, that type of soluble fiber is miraculous in the bathroom. It really regulates them. Um, and some type of fiber is really fermentable. Um, it feeds our gut bacteria really, really well. Beans, broccoli, uh, cauliflower, you know, all those uh, vegetables and foods that have a gassy reputation are really fermentable, and that's a good thing. It feeds our gut bacteria. It keeps a really robust and abundant um, and healthy community um, and ecosystem within our intestines, which is associated with terrific health. But the problem is if you already suffer from loads of gas and gas pain, then really fermentable fibers are going to feel awful for you. So even though they may be objectively healthy um, and they promote, you know, gut bacteria health, they don't feel good to eat and they make you miserable. Um, and so foods that are more fermentable versus less fermentable uh, in terms of the fiber might be a consideration. And so I have a whole chapter on fiber in the book to help our readers understand, you know, with your particular type of problem, what are the fiber-rich foods? What are the healthiest foods that are going to feel good in your body? If you're prone to diarrhea and too much gas, I want to give you those soluble fiber foods that are not fermentable, and here's what those foods are. And if you're super-duper constipated, um, you know, I want to tell you, like, what the types of fiber are that are you really going to, you know, you want to prioritize in your diet. And so understanding how fiber behaves in your body can really be a key to understanding how to eat a healthy diet that agrees with you. Um, which is really important. And, and um, I want to talk about more about the food choices uh, when we get back from this break. Uh, we're talking today with Tamara Freuman. We're discussing her book, The Bloated Belly Whisperer. And we'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated. 
with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. How much health and wellness information have you been exposed to today? Listen to Prescription for Success with Dr. Emil Haldi. Healing and empowerment start from within, but it also takes the best knowledge and advice. That's what you'll find here. Dr. Haldi and his guests will help you make the right life-enhancing decisions for well-being success. Tune in live every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Prescription for Success. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with host Nancy Kerala. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. Together with her guests, we'll explore C. diff infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Tamara Freuman, and we're discussing her book, The Bloated Belly Whisperer. So, Tamara, um, is there a certain diet, aside from talking about fiber like we did before the break, but is there certain things that you do that help people um, choose certain foods to help them with their condition? So there's two main diets that I write about in my book and that I use in my practice, and often they're not mutually exclusive. I'll kind of combine elements of them, Um, and they're really tailored to some of the main causes of bloating. And so the first diet I, I use is something that I call the GI Gentle Diet, and that's really a softer textured diet. It's not too high in fat, um, and it's designed to be 
the kinds of foods that will empty your stomach relatively quicker because they're soft and they're mushy and, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time and acid for your stomach to really you know, liquefy them, which is what your stomach's job is. And so, you know, picture how much time and churning your stomach would have to do to liquefy a giant kale salad. Well, if you put all that kale salad into a blender and made it a kale smoothie, how much time and churning would it take for your stomach to empty that, right? And so by modifying the texture of your diet, choosing more cooked than raw and, you know, cooking foods uh, in certain ways and peeling things and um, those types of modifications to texture can really facilitate emptying. They distend the stomach and the bowel a lot less than raw, bulky foods, um, and so they can be much more comfortable for people with many types of bloating. And so that's the GI gentle diet, and I talk a lot about that, a whole chapter in my book. Um, And then another diet that I use a lot is called the low FODMAP diet, and that's FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, and it's an acronym for all types of different carbohydrates and fibers and sugars that are very fermentable by gut bacteria, and they produce a lot of gas in the bowel. And so low FODMAP diets can be really helpful for people who have a lot of intestinal gas and bloating caused by that. Um, Maybe if they're really constipated and before we can really get things moving, that gas gets trapped and it's really uncomfortable for them. It's got nowhere to go. And so pulling back on some of those very gassy, fermentable foods can give people relief from bloating. Um, And the diet's really great because it helps us understand which particular um, types of fermentable carbohydrates really bother a given individual. It may not be all of them. It may be just one family of them. Like, you know, uh, the type of fiber that's in beans, for example, which is also in some other foods like beets and cashews. Um, and so some people just find that particular type of fiber really, really, really gassy. Um, but other ones are fine for them. And so it's a great diet in terms of it gives people pretty quick relief from gas. And then we can kind of move on to challenge you know, one group of foods at a time to understand what really the culprit is so that people don't have to go through life with this just incredibly restricted diet. So I'd say those are the two most common diets I use in my practice, but there's others as well because, again, it's a very individualized process and I don't have a one-size-fits-all solution for my patients. Well, the, the the GI gentle diet is very similar to what is recommended in Chinese medicine. And I'm a, a doctor of Chinese medicine. And, um, you know, they're, they're very big on um, overcooking your food if you're having digestive problems to make it easier to digest. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people that are for raw foods will argue this, but, you know, it's very difficult to digest raw foods if you are having trouble digesting. And a lot of people do... Um, really prefer having things, you know, softer and and easier to digest. Uh, Congee is a big one, which is like overcooked rice and meat um, that's cooked for a really long time, so it's easier on the on the system. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think something you said is very telling, which is like you know, raw food advocates will really disagree with it, but you know. Not everyone in the world has to follow the same diet. If raw works for you, if it feels good, you love it, it's giving you great health, more power to you. You know, eat your raw (laughs) diet. But not everyone can. And if it's good for you, I'm happy for you. My patients typically cannot tolerate a raw diet or they wouldn't be here with me. Um, And so I think it's important for our patients to understand that just because you see a quote-unquote healthy diet trending on Instagram or your best friend or, you know, someone at work, you know, lost a ton of weight on keto or, you know, looks amazing and they're on a raw diet or a vegan diet or whatever it is, just because it works for someone else 
doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And our job as owners of our bodies uh, is to figure out what is the healthiest diet that feels good in my body? What is the healthiest diet that works for me, that has foods that I enjoy, that have foods that love me back? Um, and that doesn't have to be the same thing as whatever's popular or what someone else is doing. Well, you know, I, I definitely agree with you. You know, we've had superfoods and super vegetables come and go, and there's always a bit of a trend depending on what people are talking about. And, you know, it, the feedback from people is that it sometimes it works for people and it makes them feel better, and sometimes it doesn't. And I think it goes back to what you said where, you know, not every diet works for everyone, so we have to figure out what works for us. And if, you know, you're just talking about the 10 <clears throat> most common causes of bloating and there's, I'm going to... I guess more than that, um, we're, you know, we're all different and our needs are different. And if it's an upper GI problem or a lower GI problem, your needs are going to be different than the, uh, somebody with the opposite problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that when we talk about diet in our culture, it's really become almost like we're, people proselytize as if it's like a religion and you have to convert people to your diet. Um, and we have to get away from that. Um, diet is not religion. Diet is you know, the food that your body needs to live, and uh, you, it has to pass through this in, uh, digestive tract that has a mind of its own, like quite literally. And your body, you are the caretaker of your body, and you are responsible for feeding it, and someone else is not responsible for feeding your body. Um, and we all have to really just, you know, be true to ourselves and to our own needs and try to tune out a lot of the, the preachiness and the proselytizing and just tune into ourselves um, and what messages. I often find that people who have a chronic digestive problem, they come to me and they're 75% already on the diet that I would have put them on because over time, they've just gravitated to the foods that have felt good. They know that kale salads don't feel good for them. They know that beans have been a problem for them, and so they're already not eating them, and they're already eating more cooked and soft and mushy or whatever it is because... You know, they've listened to their bodies, even if it's subconscious, they don't realize they're doing it, um, and they've just gravitated towards the foods that don't make them feel sick when they eat them. And I think that that's a really interesting intuitive process that I see going on a lot. Well, you know, yeah, I, I agree. And I think that also brings us back to, you know, some people do get very, this diet worked for me, so you should do it. And, um, you know, it might work for the other person. But at the same time, if if it doesn't feel right, it shouldn't be something that you should do because some people do really well on keto. And some people don't tolerate all the protein and fat that can come along with that. And we really, and, and our needs can change. We can do really well for a couple of years on something and then your body just doesn't want that and, or need it anymore because you've yeah. done some healing or or you're just in a different place and you need a different support in your life as well definitely totally agree so are there some supplements that uh, people can take that can help them yeah, I mean, there are a handful of supplements um, that I use in my practice. And, you know, I'm not sure how regulation works in Canada. I hope better than here in the U.S. <laughs> but I'm very supplement shy when it comes to this stuff in the U.S. because our government does not regulate supplements hardly at all. Um, and so any company can put anything in a bottle and throw it on a shelf. They don't even have to prove that what they say is in it is actually in it. They don't have to prove that it's not contaminated with any heavy metals. Um, and they can, like, it's the wild, wild west. And so, and there's a lot of supplement injury here in the U.S. You know, one in every five cases of acute liver toxicity is caused by a dietary supplement in the U.S. So I'm very 
cautious when it comes to supplements. Um, and I'm specific about brands and specific about, you know, only use what, you know, we really need. Um, having said that, with that huge disclaimer, um, for my constipated patients, magnesium is terrific. It works really, really well. It's natural. It's easy. Your body needs it anyway. You take some magnesium at night. It typically helps people go to the bathroom the next morning in a gentle, non-crampy way. I think it's terrific. Um, I do a lot of soluble fiber supplements for my patients who have diarrhea. Um, a couple of grams of soluble fiber in a supplement can be miraculous for someone who is prone to sort of morning bouts of crampy, loose, you know, back and forth bowel movements, you know, back and forth to the bathroom all morning. And taking just a couple grams of a soluble fiber supplement at night can really clean that up for them, and it's been wonderful. Um, there's enteric-coated peppermint oil supplements that work really great for feelings of abdominal bloating, fullness, crampiness, pain. Um, that works really well for some of the intestinal, like the lower GI bloating, uh, not really for upper GI bloating because peppermint oil could give you reflux if you have upper GI problems. Um, and so, you know, those are some of the more common ones, I guess, in my practice. I mean, there's others, uh, but those are some of the ones that I'm really much more commonly recommending. Um, yeah, the the uh, regulations in Canada are a lot more strict than in the States. We actually have some of the strictest in the world, which um, makes it very, very safe for people. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not an advocate of people taking 20 different supplements. I think that, you know, um, that's just the, too much in the end as well, especially when a lot can be done through diet. Um, even if, you know, your stomach isn't your issue, you can make some changes that can help your body adjust to uh, reducing inflammation and, and doing, you know, and feeling better. Definitely. Um, so it, it, are there certain, um, is there anything else that, that uh, people have to do aside from diet and supplements? Is there any lifestyle changes or anything that would help them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, certain types of bloating respond well to changes in meal patterns. Um, so, for example, you know, eating sort of small amounts spaced every three to four hours versus, you know, two to three meals a day, right? That can feel really different in your body, and some bodies may favor one versus the other. And so kind of thinking about the size and the spacing and the timing of your meals can be an extra sort of lever that you can pull um, to manage some of your bloating symptoms. Um, you know, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention alcohol. Uh, alcohol can have an effect on GI function. It is a direct GI irritant, um, and certain types of alcohol have additives that some people have a problem with, like sulfites, and some of them are high in FODMAPs and can be gassy and, and bloating for them. And so, you know, understanding how different types of alcohol and just drinking in general affects you uh, is also something to pay attention to um, in terms of bloating. Um, and then also recognizing that not all bloating is a diet problem. And so if you're someone who has suffered from bloating for like, you know, years and years and you've like literally tried like five different diets and none of them made an ounce of difference, you get to a point where you have to say, maybe it's not actually a food that I'm reacting to. I think it's a really common thing that we think like, oh, I'm bloated. It's a food sensitivity or it's a food allergy or it's a food intolerance. And often it is, but not always. You know, sometimes it really can be like a neuromuscular problem that you're your pelvic floor muscles just don't work um, well, or your abdominal wall muscles aren't functioning properly, um, or you know your colon is just so incredibly slow, and you'd only know that by doing some motility testing with a doctor, some specialized testing. Um, and so 
just, you know, being open to the possibility that if you really have tried a lot of different diet stuff and nothing has made an ounce of difference, you know, I've seen some people whittle their diet literally down to four foods and often under the, you know, under the care of you know, some sort of, you know, nutritionist or nutrition counselor or um, health professional. And I find that so concerning um, because I don't know. I mean, I deal with some pretty sick people with, you know, a lot of problems. And I can't think of any diet that I've ever had to put a person on, restricted as it may have been, that was only five foods. And that is concerning uh, if your diet has been whittled down that far. Um, and you have to, you know, be open to the possibility that, <laughs> you know, if... You, if food isn't making a difference, it may not be the food. So what are some causes of bloating that wouldn't be related to diet at all? So one of the things is called pelvic floor dyssynergia, which is, you know, your pelvic floor muscles um, that are supposed to uh, coordinate in a certain way to allow you to pass stool literally don't allow you to pass stool. And so there's this one sling-like muscle, for example, that's supposed to relax um, to allow the stool to pass. And in some cases, it actually contracts and propels the stool backward when you try to sit down and push out a poop. Uh, when that happens, it doesn't matter what you eat. You know, yeah. that poop that muscularly is not able to leave. Or if the uh, the rectal muscle, the rectum is too tight, it's hypertensive, it can't relax enough to allow a stool to pass. And you just get complete, incomplete evacuation. And the stool builds up and builds up and builds up. doesn't matter what you eat. Although certainly eating a lot of fiber will make that worse. Um, but you could also just eat nothing. And if you're not passing stool, you're miserable. Um, and so some, like those are examples. Aerophagia, swallowing air. If you're swallowing air when you sleep or, you know, when you talk, it doesn't matter what you eat. You know, you're going to be super bloated and belchy and uncomfortable all the time, even if you eat nothing. Um, and so there are causes of bloating that just aren't related to the food you're eating. Um, and I, I, it, as a dietitian, I, you know, I'd love to be able to fix everyone's problem with food, but, you know, it's not always the food. Um, it, and I would guess that hormones can also have an aspect of this as well. Sure. I mean, certainly some women do report feeling more bloated at certain types of their cycle. Um, and there's one big cause of bloating that I don't really talk about in my book, which is endometriosis, um, which you know, hormone related, right? Um, and mm -hmm. that is, you know, a problem for women who are experiencing just sort of swelling of all sorts of tissues in the abdominal cavity from their endometriosis will feel incredibly bloated all the time. And because there's just so much swelling in there, uh, eating can be really fraught. It can be really uncomfortable to eat. And any extra bit of stool that's stuck around or any bit of extra gas in an already kind of tight, crowded space can be misery. Um, and so certainly, yeah, there are causes that are not diet-related that can be more hormonal-related um, that I don't cover in my book and that I can't really fix as a dietitian. Um, well, it, it, it is good to know that, you know, it's not, it's not always about food, as you said. So if you, you know, but it's good to get other opinions and, um, and definitely get help, um, you know, to, to, to figure out what this is. It's very complicated just from what you've been describing to figure this out. So I think it's important that, that people either read your book or go and see someone um, like you that, that can help them. Yeah, definitely. And the other piece of advice I would say to piggyback on that is, you know, a lot of my patients have been tested for a lot of things and they don't remember what and they don't remember what it was for. Anytime a doctor does a test on you, ask for a copy of the results. Get a copy of the results and keep a folder. 
because it's really hard to remember if you're not a medical professional what it was, what it found, what it what it ruled out. Um, and when I'm trying to take a history from you and I want to know, like, did you have this test? I'm not sure. You know, it's really helpful for me to know that a doctor has already checked your stomach emptying time and it's perfectly normal. Or a doctor has already checked your motility in your colon and you're not slow or you are slow. Like, and often patients don't remember the names of the tests and what the results were. Um, and at any time you see a new practitioner to get another opinion, you're going to waste so much time and money reinventing the wheel, retesting for things that have already been tested. So if you just keep your blood work, keep your test results, you know, get yourself a folder, um, and it will help speed along your diagnostic journey um, if you're able to do that. Well, perfect. Now, if anybody has any more uh, questions, how can they get a hold of you or your book? So my book, uh, me and my book are both at thebloatedbellywhisperer.com, and there's more information about my clinical practice in New York and about the book, and I have a bloated belly Q&A, and so people can submit bloating questions that I will try to answer if I have uh, relevant details provided. Um, And so that's thebloatedbellywhisperer.com. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. It was fun. Um, and today we were talking with uh, the Bloated Belly Whisperer, who is Tamara Froyman. If you want more information about my journey and how I got back to health, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on your favorite social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 